As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. In the world that is social media, it can often lead to some, lack of a better word, interesting encounters, some fruitful, some not so much. However, our guest today, I've been fortunate enough to be in several Twitter spaces and in conversation with him. And I'm super excited to be in conversation today on the Malcolm Effect. How are you, Greg? I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing, Mamadou? Um, well, well, thank you for coming on to the Malcolm Effect. You know what? I'm going to be totally honest with our listeners. Today's topic isn't something I know much about, but I know through our conversations, we're just going to unpack it. So this episode will be called A Material Analysis of Space. For those who have been on the journey with me, you will all be aware and familiar with the terms material analysis because I cannot stop speaking about it. However, material analysis of space, Greg, like what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean... So before you and I even got going on how we were going to have this conversation, we were really trying to nail it down. And for me, my fundamental kind of research interest is thinking of the ways that politics produces space and then also the way that particular way understandings of space kind of inform our politics. And um, I think also in terms of the material side of it, Anybody who has read Marx and indeed a lot of the the wider canon of sort of Marxian or leftist kind of political theory and political economy and political philosophy, there are just manifold ways to think about the relationship between space and politics and economy. And, and that entire kind of world just fascinates me. So when you approached me to kind of do this episode, that was I just like, let's just have a big, long conversation about different ways of thinking about space and politics and, and Marxism. So I, here we are today, I suppose. Let's do that. Okay, so when we say space, then let's pin it down. We're not talking about like the planets or the universe or what we're talking about when we say space. I know people will be confused. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, I suppose the best way for us to, to begin would be to go all the way back to Marx without kind of relitigating the whole story. Marx really gets us to think about the way that capital is not simply an object. Capital is a social relation and capitalism mm -hmm. is a social relation. And he teaches us about the way that there's a, there's a common misconception that sort of capitalism is anything in which somebody has money and spends it and buys something. Whereas mm -hmm. what capital is or what capitalism is, is it somebody who has a surplus of value that they are able to put into motion or put into a process without them working themselves. And that's really, really important because when we then think about the capitalist process, think of a factory, for example, Marx wants yeah. us to understand that the factory is capital. The material that goes into the making of the product is capital. The workers are capital. Now, where that becomes spatial is in the, in the factory process, for example, the goods and the labor are put into a process which turns them into a commodity. Now, once the capitalist mm -hmm. has that finished commodity, that remains their capital. But in order yes. for them to return to the beginning of the productive process, in order for them to continue expanding their capital by producing more, 
they need to get that commodity out into the world. They need to sell it and convert that commodity capital back into money capital. And then they can use that money capital to restart the process. Now, so there is an entire sort of spatial, there are so many spatial elements to capitalism, Mm -hmm. both in terms of like the spatial arrangement of a factory, which concentrates workers and material and productive processes into a space that is then governed by sort of capitalist rules, down to the way that capital moves throughout the world. I think one of the most interesting things to think about this, or one of the ways that we can think about it is, if you think about like the globalization process that has happened since around about the 1970s, big shipping containers, and you can think about, for example, the the ever given freight ship that was blocking the, uh, the Suez Canal last year. Yes. The container itself, like shipping containers, were a grand like revolution in global shipping because up until that point, global shipping of commodities had been incredibly chaotic and disorganized. By creating these like uniform containers that could be unloaded off of ships onto trains or onto lorries and then moved around moved around countries and territories very quickly, it revolutionized the speed at which commodities and capital could move around the world. And also, I mean, related to that as well, if you think about the process of globalization itself, and if we think about, for example, jobs in the global north or in the center being shipped overseas to places in the developing world or third world like China and Vietnam, Mm -hmm. Bangladesh and places like that, in order for capital to continue to be profitable while shipping those jobs over to these other countries to take advantage of and to, to take advantage and exploit lower wages you simultaneously have to streamline and smoothen out the process by which commodities move around the world Mm -hmm. so to finish off i would simply say that there are two quotes from marx that i think really kind of get to the heart of what we're talking about one which is that he says like capital is value in process and i think that's a really fundamental way to think about it it's not just money it's about money in process and then also sort of critical geographers and political geographers and Marxist geographers would then sort of take that or develop it a little bit further and say capital is value in motion. And therefore you immediately have like a spatial conception of what capital is. And the other one to think about is that there's there's a very famous from quote where he says he talks about this thing called the annihilation of space through time. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about, for example, globalization, there is both the movement for capital to control ever more territory and ever more space to expand ever further across the globe. Now, once yep. globalization had had accomplished that task, and once we lived in a truly sort of globalized world, once I can sort of get from, for example, London to America in, let's say, 12 hours, then the next task is to reduce that time. Yes. You can think about sort of the move, you can think about the move from sort of shipping to air travel. You can think about the development of Concord. So mm-hmm. that's the other really fascinating element for me is the relationship between space and time. And that capital both extends and sort of tries to dominate ever greater amounts of spaces, but then it also tries to shrink that space. And in so doing, it also shrinks time. And I think if you think about sort of the chaotic world that we live in today, where everything just feels to be moving faster and faster. And yes. it's very difficult to kind of get a grip on our place in the world and information and commodities and financial transactions move faster and faster and faster. That, that These are the kind of questions that really fascinate me, the relationship between space and time. So thank you so much for that. There's several light bulbs going off in my head right now. 
and reflecting on what you just said or thinking through what you just said there. And the first thing I'm kind of called to when Vijay Prashad speaks about it was a massive loss for labour with the introduction of disarticulation of finance or disarticulation of production more specifically, in that, you know, previously it was a person, individual, group of individuals, group of capitalists having to raise the capital in a specific place for the factory and incur all the risk and cost that comes with in order to produce more capital. But he says it was massive loss for labour with disarticulation of production because now we have, for example, whereas it was an individual having to, you know, raise a huge amount of sums of money or be gifted that by other means, it was now export to let's say Indonesia for example where that small smaller factory will just be in charge of producing tires for example or producing one part of the production process where and so then they incur the costs and then and then how was it a loss for labor it makes almost unionizing impossible because places where employees want to unionize capitalists in America and the global north will just not go to that space anymore so is that kind of including what you're saying as well am I understanding correctly yeah I think you're absolutely right and that's kind of where the more kind of philosophical or metaphysical aspects of of space and 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 capital kind of come into question for me there's a duo of french philosophers from the 1970s called um Gilles Deleuze and uh Felix Gattari and they're like mm-hmm. they're they're two sort of philosophers that i hold really um central to my to a lot of my thinking and they have this yeah. concept of they have this concept called like territorialization and what they kind of they use it in a lot of different ways but one of the ways that 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 a lot of people have picked up on it it kind of they they started off with this beginning with what marx would call about like capitalist alienation in which like the more that capital comes to sort of dominate our lives the more we begin to understand our social relations and the world in which we live through financial transactions and through the logic of capital as opposed yes. to human social relations or the material world in which we live, we you know we become more and more alienated from our lives. Now, what yes. Gilles Deleuze and Felix Gattari kind of said to that was, that's not entirely the whole story because they 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 sort of used elements of psychoanalysis and said, well, if all capital did was alienate you, if it was just that unidirectional motion of alienation from the world, we'd all kind of become neurotics and the world would have no meaning and we wouldn't be able to function. So what they what they kind of said was there are two processes. First, there is a deterritorialization in which like capital kind of rips up our immediate social relations and literally tears them away and sort of disassembles the world around us that makes sense to us. And you can think about gentrification as I talk about this as well. I think gentrification yes. is a really good example of this. So first, there's that motion of deterritorialization in which all of our social relations become detached and sort of ripped apart by capitalist forces and then they say there's a simultaneous re-territorialization in which all of these things are then sort of recoded or overcoded or re-territorialized to the logics of capital so what they're kind of saying is that like no like it's not just that you become alienated is that actually you get ripped out of your social relations and then you get repositioned in capital and you sort of begin mm. to understand your life through capital so that's their kind of theory now the reason that relates to what you've just brought up there is that when we think about space and territory as well there are it's not just about kind of the immediate sort of geographical territories that i'm thinking about we can also think about sort of more metaphysical or more sort of conceptual territories so for example 
back when we lived in kind of, I'd say, sort of the modernist age and sort of industrial age of, say, for example, the 19th century into sort of the first beginnings of the 20th century, probably up until about the Second World War, production and manufacturing and labor, for example, was for the most part, it was pretty concentrated in single spaces. You know, yes, it's not a, it's not a coincidence that the post World War Two period in like the global North in America and in the United Kingdom was one of the sort of high points of labor um, union labor organization because the state kind of mobilized the entire national productive forces into factories to produce armaments and stuff. People gave yeah. their lives in the war and stuff, and they came out of this war and said, "Hey, we've we've made a massive sacrifice, and, and we're all in the factory together. We all see what we've gone through together. We all see our power." So, you know, it, it makes sense that you, the union was strong and therefore like wages were high. You had this massive sort of very rare in the long sort of arc of history, very rare period of like really strong wages and strong union organization. So yes. what you then get to with the 1960s and 70s and, and what Prashad calls, you know, the disassembly of labor or the, you know, is that capital dismantles that productive process. And shifts it into pockets all over the world and disorganizes it, disassembles it. Now, the reason that that, is, that remains territorial is that there is still a territory at play there. Capital is still constructing its own territory. And it's a territory that actually spans across the globe. And it transcends borders. And it's actually, and this is what I mean again about like the way that the logic of the world kind of becomes re-territorialized to capital. It doesn't make sense that... Mm. The productive, you know, people, you've probably seen this stories where like, you know, fruit and veg are picked in one country and then they're wrapped in another country halfway yep. around the globe and then they're reshipped back to the United States. But this is the, the madness of it is that according to the logic and the territory in which capital operates, this is the function because it keeps capital, it keeps labor, it keeps workers separated and sort of, yeah, it's madness. Would you not say it's like a process of circumventing the contradictions of capitalism in the global north this exportation of you know i mean as lenin would say the highest stage of capitalism being imperialism isn't that what we're essentially saying here that in order for capitalism to continue to have longevity it had to do that that was natural a process or progress in its development to circumvent the contradictions i mean yeah absolutely i would also then i think that you and i as sort of students of global perspectives or people who try to be attentive to global perspectives would we'd probably ask ourselves the question has that ever not been the case yes and what i would then do is we could probably bring that back to thinking about an individual like walter rodney who exactly yes where you know people often ask you know what do dialectics mean and i think one of the best one of the best examples of defining dialectics is when Walter Rodney kind of makes the point that if you've ever heard somebody say, oh, well, it was it was West Africa or the African nations that provided the slaves with the slave trade. Well, that supply was connected to a demand. And it was exactly. the, it was the demand from the outside that generated the supply from the inside. Those two things were dialectically related. But from that point onwards and and. There are plenty theorists who would say that, you know, the transatlantic slave trade and chattel slavery and that kind of brute extraction of value from enslaved people was kind of the furnace, one of the originary furnaces in which capital and capitalism sort of first took place. But that fundamental kind of 
dialectical and unbreakable relationship between a capitalist inside and an exploited or oppressed or marginalized outside has been somewhat constant to, even if you don't want to call it capitalism in total, the development of this Western, Western founded, Western driven sort of social system in which we live. And when it comes to the globalized era in which we are living now, in which aside from a few very small but not insignificant pockets of resistance in spaces around the globe, which I don't want to overlook, I think it's important to remember those things, we do nevertheless live in a world in which, for the most part, to a greater or lesser extent, the entire globe has been territorialized by capital. We are now living in a glo- we are now living within a globalized inside. You know, somebody like Rosa Luxemburg around about the same time as Lenin would have said that capital needs spaces outside of itself, both to kind of extract, continue extracting, performing primitive accumulation, but also to find new consumers in order to sell its surplus product. And, and you know. The question sort of becomes whether that is still the case. But what what I think we can look at now is that in a globalized sort of capitalist market and system in which everything is kind of inside and it's very difficult to locate an outside, you still do nonetheless require these sort of hierarchies or this system of this structure of differentiation, this structure in which some areas are overdevelopment and gain extra surplus and are allowed to be indulgent and to consume more than they produce. And you need other areas which are sort of quasi outside in which they produce more than they consume and which they are primarily exploited. And I think that when you then get to thinking about things like border regimes, you think about the way that we live in a world in which the neoliberal dream of a borderless world was has been realized for capital. Yeah, for, <laughs> exactly. It's been realized for capital and commodities. Capital loves a borderless world as far as its own interests go. It isn't as supportive of it in questions of the movement of bodies and the movement of human beings. Exactly. So, yeah, I think I think you're right to bring that question up. And I would simply say that, you know, if we look at the long arc of history, it's nothing new. It's nothing novel. What I would say, and I think this is where, again, you have to kind of be, to be materialist is to be embedded in the here and now and to really grapple with it. I'm very, you know, we can recognize the tendency, but then it's also about noticing the shifts and the ways that these relations and these, and again, these spatial arrangements have been altered and adjusted in order to fit the the error in which they take place. Okay, so let's speaking about um, the here and now, and then you you just touched on the in-group and the out-group. What are the determining factors that go into producing or creating an in-group and an out-group in the here and now? That's a really good question. <clears throat> I mean, in my, th- in the way that I theorise it and in the way that I have come to understand it, and I, this is it's so difficult to answer that without getting into a long, long history question, but I mean... You have <laughs> Feel to free. Go- <laughs> I, yeah, I know, but I'm worried about your listeners, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> For me, I think you can. I think it's really important. I'm sorry to do it, but I think you have to go back to the Enlightenment, okay. because the Enlightenment as this kind of philosophical moment. You know, you can think about Descartes, for example, cogito ergo sum. I yeah, think, some, therefore, yeah. I am. And what Descartes did there was he identified what well, he he did. And again, this is spatial. He established a divide between a subject and an object. He yeah. said there is a world and there is a person. And by thinking and observing the world, 
I can know and I can dominate the world. And it's not an accident that Descartes was also the person who developed Cartesian perspective. And he was actually fundamental to the creation of maps and cartography. Mm. And then we can actually get into a big, long discussion about how the discipline of geography, the creation of maps itself, the idea of the world as an object to be known and understood, has a very, it's very much embedded within those originary sort of European enlightenment periods, which led to projects such as colonialism and imperialism. I mean, even if you think about Cartesian maps, the Cartesian perspective, the, the, the principle behind the Cartesian perspective was that there was an invisible eye that hovered above the territory that you were looking at. It was an all seeing eye. It could survey and it could see everything and it could be in control of it. So it, so what, going back to your question of like how we develop that inside and outside, I mean, so much of that enlightenment thinking, whether you're talking about Immanuel Kant or whether you're talking about Descartes, it was founded upon this idea of the European subject as being somebody who had a framework or a system of knowledge, an episteme, so to speak, in which the world was an object that could be known and studied and tracked and conquered and possessed Mm -hmm. there was a relationship between knowledge and possession you can even think about think about a word as simple as the word hold and the way that you can like hold ideas hold opinions to hold to possess so you know you'll often hear a lot of people talk about the enlightenment and kind of in both positive and negative terms and and a lot of the time it comes back to it but that that, that the fundamental inside and outside was that the idea that the European was the person who had who had who had um, arrived upon that stage of history and possessed the knowledge, and therefore when and also within the Enlightenment as well there was this very linear conception of you know development and human evolution that 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 all of humanity was on this sort of linear trajectory towards the light, and therefore mm-hmm. when they stumbled upon or discovered or cho- you know choose your verb people around the world who are at different stages of development or simply in different social relations, different ways of living, different ways of relating to the world, different ways of existing, different ways of understanding nature. They Mm -hmm. were seen as being inferior on a lesser stage of development. So I would simply say that to answer that very, very complex question, I think that so much of what we deal with today is a fallout from that from that sort of fundamental problem. And one other thing that I would would also say is that there's something very theological, there's something very Mm -hmm. religious to capitalism. There is this idea, a bit like Protestantism, where it kind of says Mm -hmm. you have American Protestantism, Calvinism, that if you work hard and if you make money and you succeed, then you are one of the select, you are blessed, then you will get into heaven. And this was very, very fundamental to the, like, the American Protestant belief, for example, that if I make money and if I am accumulating capital, then I am therefore pious, which yes. is very important for the sort of moral, the moral sustenance of a process like slavery. But, mm-hmm. And then the other side of that was that if somebody doesn't make money or if somebody struggles or if they suffer, they are therefore a sinner. Yeah. You know? Now, the reason I think that is, I think we still continue to see that in the way that certain people think about the inside and outside today of who is inside and who counts and who doesn't. You still hear it very regularly when people say, why can't Africa save itself? Why can't Africa oh, fix itself? So, and again, with that, again, that takes us back to the Enlightenment again. But the, how, how these in-groups and out-groups are produced, I mean, there's a very famous 
quote from Ruth Gil Ruth Wilson Gilmore where she says, you know, capitalism requires inequality. No, yeah, capitalism requires inequality, and race inscribes it. So race is a sort of technology that sort of inscribes upon the flesh, sort of using visual, phenotypical, hematological markers to mark somebody as different, to reflect and reproduce and reify the inequalities and inequities that are produced by capitalism itself. Yeah. It's a very so these these things these things exist in, in a constant reciprocal communicative relationship with one another. A dialectical relationship, absolutely. If we're thinking then about as you said, that the world has been re-territorialized to the logics of capital and capitalism, just taking it back to the here and now again or bringing it to the here and now again, what does that look like manifest, expressed in our political climate today? That's a really good question because I think there's a book by a guy called Paolo Gerbaudo that I read just a few weeks ago called The Great Recoil. Yeah. And his he has a really interesting thesis about this thinking about sort of the election of Donald Trump in the United States, the success of the Brexit vote in the UK and the rise of kind of nationalisms and fortress conceptions of the nation state. I mean, even if you look at what, for example, Priti Patel is trying to do with border security and border ring regimes in the UK is another great example. What, what Gobaldo kind of says is that since the 1970s, we've lived through a long arc of deterritorialization in which nation states, particularly in the West, have signed away a lot of their political, I wouldn't say sovereignty, but their, their power to intervene politically within certain debates. Because what neoliberalism was at core, and you and I have spoken about this before, is it was a project in which the question of state intervention in political matters the idea of, for example, a welfare state or the idea yes. of, for example, tariffs or social benefits or nationalized industry. These were seen as anathema to the functioning of a free market, a truly free market. You know, that liberalism is founded upon the rights of the individual, the right to private property and the, the, in, the unquestionability of the free market. So when we talk yes. about neo when we talk about neoliberalism, this was a group of economics, mostly Austrian, who said, like, no, you have to go back to the source. You have to rediscover those principles. Get the state out of the way. So neoliberalism was a process of, you know, it's it's characterized by, for example, privatization and deregulation of markets, dismantling of the welfare state, globalization, reduction of tariffs, formation of sort of again international or transnational territories of trade. So Gabalda calls that like a, a period of deterritorialization, where basically all these borders and all these sort of spatial and relations were kind of dissolved to facilitate capital. And now mm -hmm. I think, you know, anybody who's lived in the world since 2008 can kind of see that capital has run rampant and we live in a world in which the capital's contradictions kind of amplify and exaggerate and become more and more chaotic every single day. And yet yep. nobody can, no, no individual political state seems to be capable of intervening. So then what Gerbaldo says, he, he uses a Hegelian logic. You know, some people would question this. You know, I struggle with dialectical thinking on this level. But he kind of says that what we're now living through is a kind of a rebound, a Hegelian kind of antithesis in which deterritorialization is giving away to re-territorialization, in which states mm -hmm. are now sort of re trying to reassert their national boundaries. And they're based on sort of protection and security and inside outside, you know, 
So I would say that's one one aspect of it. I think that like we live in a world in which there we 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 we're living under a both a globalized capital that dominates and kind of directs and sort of is completely uncontrollable across the entire globe. And then also yeah. simultaneously we have nation states which are trying to reassert the, this political question of sovereignty and national identity. Now let's remember they still cannot intervene politically in terms of the market. They cannot in, intervene politically in terms of sort of a lot of those material questions. They can't. Now that's where you get the resurgence of things such as nationalism and sort of white nationalism, isolationism, nativism, formations of reactionary conceptions of identity. Because if you can't intervene materially in people's lives and alter or redirect the flows of this capitalist system, which, as we can all see, is ripping our worlds apart, if you cannot actually answer that question, and that's one of the things I think is really interesting to note about the right wing, for example, you'll often hear them Mm -hmm. present quite sort of cogent analyses of analyses of the situation, whether it's, for example, a Nigel Farage in the United Kingdom or over in the US, you have figures like Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance and some of these other and even even Trump. They actually had quite cogent analyses of the situation where they're like, all the jobs have gone away. Drugs are ripping through our communities, you know. No one can get a job. Wages have stagnated. The big corporations have taken advantage of you. You can't make any money. You know, the analysis was correct, but what they can't do is tell you why that is yes. because they are capitalists. And that's why they <laughs> therefore have to go, it's because immigrants, it's because LGBTQ people, it's because trans people, yeah. it's because the libs, because, because that's, that's, you know, and that's, that's why I think we're also seeing a resurgence or a renewed interest in the left and materialism among a lot of people, particularly young people such as you and me who have lived through this now. You know, whenever I speak to anybody a little bit older than me, I'm just like, I mean, you know, I'm 30 this year. In 2008, I turned 18. No, I turned 16. Okay. I'm getting old. But, you know, (laughs) but whenever I meet people, I just say to them, like, you you come at me with these kind of idealistic ideological narratives about liberalism and sort of just vote and believe and things will get better and all these other things. And I'm just like, you don't understand that I have lived through this entire thing. My entire adult life has been defined by being kicked in the teeth and kicked in the face by capitalism. Yes. And therefore I think a lot of young people are kind of rediscovering the left because we, we lived it and we can see it. And, and, to, to use a, a vulgar phrase that I, I learned from Judge Judy, don't piss on my leg and tell me it's raining. So that's one aspect. <laughs> the, other as, the other aspect that I, that I also want to think about is, I think it's really important to think about that idea of whether you're talking about colonialism, imperialism, you know, anyone who's read Lenin, where Lenin kind of said, once the nation state develops all of its capital within its enclosed space, it eventually kind of gets restless. And in order for capital to keep expanding, you're going to need to go into new territory and you're going to need to perform imperialism. And before World Mm -hmm. War I, Lenin said, eventually you capitalist national states in Europe are going to go into the the third world or whatever you want to call it. And you're going to, your territories are going to butt up against one another and Mm -hmm. you're going to break out into a world war. I think, when did he write imperialism? I think he wrote it in 1905. I could be wrong. Yeah, look what but happened. <laughs> he wasn't wrong. You know, yep. look at what happened. So that was ex- that. That's a process of extension. Now, there's another way that you can amplify your capitalist growth. If you can't extend, if you can't increase your extension, you can increase your intensity, and that's about okay. using the space that you already have 
more productively, you know, in terms of the factory, it's about making your workers work longer hours, speeding up the equipment, renewing the equipment, developing the productive forces, replacing sort of analog machinery with digital machinery, replacing computers with algorithms, you know, replacing 20 checkout workers in a supermarket with loads of self-checkouts. And then not only have you then got um, lots more transactions taking place in a smaller space in the supermarket, you've also got the, con- the and then you've got the unexpected performing the labor, and then you've got the unexpected item in the bloody bag- bagging area as well. Absolutely, but that's fine for capital because, <laughs> because they're not paying anyone to fix that problem. You're just standing <laughs> exactly. But the, so no. So the reason that's important is because you know that in so intensity. You know, you speed up the process within the space. Now, you know, again, we we've lived through a long period of that, but. The reason I wanted to bring that up is because I think the other dimension that that we are now living through, and it's it these things have happened in the past as well. Capital is now creating new territories. It is creating new territories in which it can extend. This was the case, for example, you know, during the twentieth century, you had the creation of like radio airwaves. There was a big project in the nineteen sixties in France. All of the, the radios in France were nationalized. They were run by the state. And Gilles Deleuze and Félix Gattari and a load of other people were involved in the formation of these kind of pirate radio stations. There was one called Radio Alice. And Deleuze had this big vision of it where he wanted to create these new existential territories in which like the left and sort of these new insurgent forces could, could rail against capital or live in these existential territories that were outside of capital. And they tragically paved the way for privatized radio. And there's a there's a there's there's a really sort of poignant quote from Alan Badiou when he talks about this, where he says, you know, but that's 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 the fight. We have to always fight against capital and run the risk that we might be doing its work for it. Now, mm. the reason that's relevant for us today is because there was a very similar a very similar dynamic. I think that is now happening with the internet. The internet is this vast, you know, it is a literally infinite territory, and for the better half of better part of i'd say sort of 25 years you know as long as i've been alive the internet has been a relatively open and accessible space give or take your mileage may vary you know we can have a discussion about what that what what that really means but the 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 sort of utopian vision of the internet was that it would be a, a a territory a space for the free exchange of information and which in which everyone would be able to connect with each other instantly think about that space-time compression i mean you're in cairo yeah. i'm in london right now we're having a conversation yeah. so again this these spatial dimensions are always there they're always present but what we're seeing now is that uh capital is sort of trying to to, to capitalize and commodify that territory and yeah. it's it's kicks and spits and spurts you know i i i don't think that nfts are I don't think NFTs are going to be the one. I don't think they've quite worked out the technology. I think that it's mm. fraught. With, and I'm not an expert on NFTs, so my comment on that is going to be limited. But what you have seen, the way that a lot of people talk about it, is they're like, oh, if there's a particular YouTube clip or if there's a particular sound clip or a meme or, you know, you can claim ownership to that. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really like, it's concerning. And I mean, but that's what I mean is that like... The enclosure of the internet. Yes, absolutely. And that doesn't, you know, does that mean that, that these things are going to necessarily become inaccessible to us? I'm not so sure. But what it does, it, it should tell you something about 
the imminent nature of capital, that it is constantly yes. seeking to expand and to dominate and to take control of new spaces. And I'm sure that plenty of people will have seen that the latest development in the NFT world is that you can now rent NFTs. Oh, wow. You know, that's, yeah, you don't even get to own them anymore nowadays that like there is the, the potentiality to rent them. So I would like people to think, for example, about the way that, for example, in the UK, the rent is now, you know, the number of people who are renting is rising and rising and rising. Think about the fact that there have been new developments, for example, where you can rent clothes from Selfridges. This is a fundamental wow. cap. This is a fundamental capitalist mechanism that a capitalist can just simply sit on a sit on a product and just let money flow through it, let capital flow through it. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a tangent, but I, but again, this is this is how I it's, this is these are the kind of ways that I think about these kind of things. These are capital will create a new territory and then it will gradually extend into it. And yes. That doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that we can't defeat it. It doesn't mean that it can't be overcome. But it does simply mean that we have to we have to continue struggling against these kind of things while also recognizing that we might be working on the side of it. You never quite and, know and if you're on the inside or on the outside. Exactly, and that oh, let's we're gonna go back into the inside and outside. But let's speak about a bit how this ties into let's say bordering then or the globe project of bordering. How does this tie into it? Yeah, I mean, so this is this is something that I did a bit of research and writing on for my. For my master's thesis so i have like a lot of different opinions of it but and this is this is where it gets a little bit more theoretical but i think there's a common conception of borders that we have that a border is either simply like the territorial limit of a state so for example i mean the the, the classic kind of symbol in the uk might be the white cliffs of dover the suddenly yeah. you step on you step off the cliffs of dover and you're outside the united uh, the united kingdom or you might think of just the line that separates the United States from Mexico. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about build the wall and whatever down on the uh, yeah. United States-Mexico border. Now, there have been various structures there for, for, for decades now in varying forms, in varying positions. But I like to think, or what I think is more helpful to think, is to think of borders not as concrete structures or objects, but to think of them as an activity. Or again, to think of them as a relation. And what I mean by that is that you can build a fence across the southern border of the United States and Mexico. But yeah. if there's nobody there watching the border, then someone can cut through it or they can dig under it or they can climb over it. In order for a border to operate, in order for a border to yeah. become a border, in order for it to become actual, you actually require lots of different activities and processes which make that border real that make that border work. Processes of securitization, processes of surveillance, processes of violence, processes of differentiation, processes that sort of dis define or identify what qualifies as inside, what counts, what is allowed in, and what is not allowed in, what is left out, what kind of humans are allowed to pass through into the interiority of the state, and what kind are rejected. Or... What I think one of the things I one of the things I learned when I was studying the the um the US Mexico border was in the nineteen nineties there's a uh, there's a border strategy called nineteen ninety four and beyond by the US Border Patrol and it kind of lays out their strategy and this is at the beginning of the nineties and one of the things they kind of point out is that they don't really have a lot of like statistical and quantitative data about how many people are actually crossing the desert and much more than kind of 
simply stopping people from crossing over the border. One of the big kind of motivations in their project is to gain a better grasp of that. So what happened throughout the sort of 90s and 2000s were there was a serious process of securitizing the US-Mexico border, but not mainly at the main points of entry, at the ports and at the places where cars and motorists, for example, drive through. Now, what this then produced was a sort of what you would call a funneling effect, where all of the people that would previously try and cross the border all across it would now get funneled Mm -hmm. into a select sort of finite number of particular hot points or hot spots across the border. In many cases, which also happened to be the most dangerous, for example, like the Sonora Desert or the Rio Grande River. And then what they did was they would set up all kinds of sort of very biometric sort of surveillance, electronic surveillance, cameras, motion sensors, and all kinds of things in order to to monitor the number of people that are crossing. They even used Native Americans, Indigenous Americans, shadow wolves, I think they're called. I might be wrong there. But they would use a traditional practice called cutting sign where they where you basically drag a big long object across the uh across the sand in order to smooth out and flatten the sand which is itself a process of territorialization you're turning the desert and the sand into a into a tool of the state so they would drag these objects across to make a smooth patch of sand and then what they could then do is they could go back after an hour after two hours and see how many footprints were there now the reason i say all of that is We understand that the United States agricultural system and farming relies heavily upon undocumented migrant labor. Yep. And therefore, I have this inkling feeling, it's just sort of a thesis of mine, it's something that I play around in my head, that a lot of the United States border regime isn't actually to stop people from getting in, in total, so much as gaining a sort of quantitative grasp of how many people are going across and where and at what times and at what seasons. And Within that system, even dead bodies become a data point. And I think that's that's something that I think about a lot. And I think the other thing about border regimes, once you recognize that borders are not about the borders themselves, they are not about the concrete structures, but they are about the activities. They are about these processes that decide who is in and who is out. That's what bordering is. It's about identifying who is a citizen who is a licit commodity who is an allowed person who is who counts once you recognize that that activity can kind of happen independent of whether there's a border there or not well then that activity becomes much more mobile and when i think of for example the standing rock protests in south dakota against the oil pipelines that were being driven you know put through Lakota territory, indigenous American territory, which, to be clear, these indigenous American territories are unceded sovereign territory of indigenous American people. They are not technically part of the United States. They are technically sovereign. Mm -hmm. But yet what we see when these people assert sovereignty over their own land against the United States and these sort of extractive capitalist processes is that they, they suddenly become sort of while they exist in this liminal space that is both inside and outside of America. Once they resist the imperatives and the forces of capital, they become identified as outside or as outsiders. And they are, you know, allowed or it is permitted for them to be subjected to violent military counterinsurgencies on domestic soil. Mm. So that's something I think about a lot. And this is what I mean about spatial and sort of territoriality, the way that spaces, politics produces and uses spaces and the way that people, people, 
the people that exist within a space can become inside or outside at the flick of a button, at the flick of a switch. And you can think about, for example, in United Kingdom, these attempts by Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, to enforce, to, to allow herself the imperative to strip somebody of their citizenship without notice. Yeah. That's an act of bordering. That is a, yeah. It's a metaphysical act of taking somebody who is inside, who is a citizen of the state, and throwing them outside and pushing them out. And likewise, when somebody dies in a military counterinsurgency at the hands of the state, even though, for example, indigenous Americans are seen as wards of the United States, they are seen as under the protectorate of the United States. If they yes. are deemed to be military counterinsurgent enemies and they are then killed at the hands of the state, then their deaths are acceptable. And the last, the last way that I would think about that is, again, I think about summary police executions and I think about the executions of black people across the United States. And I think about when, when one of these, when any of these individuals are killed, we see that there is this long extended process in the trial and in the media, these attempts to kind of legitimize and render their death acceptable. I mean, for example, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, it was that he, he used a counterfeit $20 bill. And also these allegations about maybe that he was a drug user or that he was a bad person in one way or another. I view these things not solely, you know, there are so many different ways to discuss and think about these concepts. But I think about a lot of these activities as acts of bordering, these acts of kind of taking these bodies, that have, these, these murders, these deaths that have been produced by the state and these attempts to kind of just push them over the border and to, to render them outside and to say that they do not count. And as a matter of fact, once the moment George Floyd attempted to purchase something with a counterfeit $20 bill, the moment that he kind of acted in such a way as to disrupt or to subvert or to interfere with the natural flow of the capitalist structure in its totality, that was the point at which he became an outsider. That was the point at which George Floyd became vulnerable to death, as someone like Ruth Wilson Gilmore would say. So I think about that a lot. And then the last point that I would just make on this is that in terms of that inside-outside dynamic and how pivotal and how crucial I think it is for us to think about it, when we think, and this is, again, this is just something that I'm sort of playing with in my head lately and just chewing, and I, th I think it's important for anyone listening to think about it as well. I think a lot about the, the migrants that are attempting to cross the channel between France and the United Kingdom a lot. And I think about these recent rulings that have said that the United Kingdom, the, you know, our government can mobilize the Navy and the military, the armed forces to intercept and reject and turn back these boats. Now, what that tells us is that to the, for the purposes of security and military endeavors and for the, for the purpose of committing violence, these waters are inside. They are the territory of the United Kingdom. But then simultane but simultaneously, there have been these things that are saying if you save if you know if if for example the lifeguard or, or, or any individual tries to rescue someone who is drowning, then they can be prosecuted and they can be taken to court, they can be potentially thrown in prison. And also that there there are these kind of so there are these kind of legalistic structures that they are attempting to put in place place which say that the waters are ours, the waters are inside, but the deaths that take place within them as a consequence of our policies are outside. Mm -hmm. and that's just something that i i don't know it's just something that i've been sort of sitting with no it's fascinating 
fascinating fascinating i'm wary of the time but i think this has been an extremely generative conversation i think i'm gonna Mother have to you know me man i can go for i have to have to get you on again no no it was, it was wicked but finally a bit of uh kind of moving away from our kind of topic at hand today just because you're in the uk you're kind of active in these streets in terms of you know you have an ear to what's going on give us our listeners a quick lowdown of where you think things are politically right now in the uk in like less than five minutes <laughs> oh man less than five minutes oh boy so i mean what i would want people to think about and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna quickly look up and make sure i get my uh my terminology correct here mm-hmm. i want people to think about the term counterinsurgency and i think that we've okay. we've lived we've lived through that we, we've lived in a period where i think a lot of us have heard that term bounding around now what counterinsurgency means is that it comes from the Latin, which means like there's a, there's a word there in surgeria, which means like to rise up, to rise against. And then also, if you break down surgeria into its composite parts, again, there are two parts. There's sub and there's regia. So there's like from below and regia to like to rule or to, to lead. So insurgency, kind of the etymology means to rise up from below and to rise against and to lead. Mm-hmm. And then counterinsurgency, you just got contra, which is just against. And therefore, counterinsurgency, my understanding of it is any movement that is against people rising up from below to lead and rule themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think about the word counterinsurgency a lot. In terms of where British politics is right now, I think that what, and I am by no means a sort of Corbyn evangelist, you know, people ask me, I go, I'm a communist. Corbyn was a project, he was there for a minute. <laughs> It was a viable vehicle. It didn't happen. I moved on. But what yes. that what that period in 2019 was, was a long-term strategic political counterinsurgency to negate and delegitimize the left in total mm-hmm. across British politics. And I think that what we are dealing with now with Labour is, I mean, is it Julius Nyerere who kind of said, you know, um, America is a one-party state, but with typical Americans, yeah. they have two parties. Yep. yep. I mean, I think that we're, we're we're dealing with a reduction of the political question in electoral terms in the United Kingdom to what is effectively a one-party state. And I think that the Labour Party and its operatives are quite conscious of the project that they are engaged in, in terms of... Yep excuse me, delegitimizing the left. And I don't think that, you know, the question of winning then is kind of secondary because if it's going to be the rule of capital, and this is this is what, and this is what it really means to be living under neoliberalism. As I said, neoliberalism is when you hand over all the political power to the market. And if the market says something's going to happen this way, that's how it's going to happen. So I think there's an understandable malaise and, and, and uncertainty among the left. My position is that I think that the Labour Party is finished and I think that people on the left should, would be much better advised to refocus their energies to working, mobilising, organising and strategising in their immediate local community. I think that if you look at what is happening across the West writ large, you know, let's talk about Hungary, let's talk about France, let's talk about the United States. I think we're in. I think. I think that the forces that that are building are really set in motion, and I think it's really important for people on the left to actually grapple with that. And I think you have to actually ask yourself, like, even if you still believe in electoralism as a project, you know, more broadly construed, you really think that voting is going to solve the forces that are coming right now? Let's talk about the line in um, 
it's in no country for old men, you know, you can't stop what's coming. So I don't know. I, I, I think there's a lot of understandable disillusionment. And I think the way that I would suppose, the way that I suppose that I would, would finish and to, to, to talk about this in spatial terms and also to kind of introduce some of my political philosophy, there's an Italian philosopher called Marcello Tarri who has a book called There Is No Unhappy Revolution, The Communism of Destitution. And he mm-hmm. talks about this concept called destituent potential. And destituent, he kind of uses it as an antonym to constituent. You know, so people come together and they constitute a power and then that power is constituted. And what what Tarry kind of points out about revolutions is that one of the one of the reasons that quote unquote revolutions always kind of fail or falter is that you come together to overthrow constituted power and in so doing you become the constituted power. Yeah. And therefore, so you know, you use violence to to overthrow the state and then you become the state and then you have to use violence to protect the state. <laughs> Yes. So, and uh, you know, that's that's not to that's not to, to poo poo the concept of revolution and, and revolutionary action. But what I mean is, is it presents a really interesting question about how do we get out of this bind? So, Tari kind of proposes this concept of destituent power or destituent potential, in which the revolutionary action is simply to do away. It is simply to to dismantle. It is simply to refuse to say no, to turn away, to turn one but turn one's back. I think about the Minneapolis, the George Floyd uprisings. Do you remember when they, they set fire to that police station? Yep. Now, I'm not endorsing that action. I'm not saying that we should all go out and set fire to police stations, far from it. But what I do think is really interesting is, after that moment happened, there were all these people that came out and went, oh, no, I don't think that they wanted to abolish the police. I think what they really <laughs> wanted was to, they wanted to defund the police. Oh, they didn't want to defund the police. They wanted to retrain the police. Oh, they didn't want to defund the police. They wanted to reallocate resources. Okay, funds. Yeah, you had all these people that, they had all these apparently very, very intelligent and smart people that came along to translate that action and to tell you what it really meant. And I thought that was really fascinating because I thought the truth of that action and, and the message was, I read it loud and clear, you know? I didn't think it needed much <laughs> translation at all. So what Tari, what Tari talks about is he talks about finding political actions and gestures in which both like the analysis of the situation and the proposal and the affirmation, the affirmation, the, the realization, the sort of the recognition of that message happen in the same gesture. And I think about that just, as I said, not, not endorsing the action in and of itself, but that was an action that said abolish the police and it abolished the police. And I think about that a lot. So what I mean to say is, Tari kind of says that we have to find a way to get out of this cycle, this cycle in which we try to overthrow the powers that be and then we become the powers that be. And I think that there is an element of that in the way that electoralism and electoral politics has become the only way that we can conceive of political change. And the way I would finish this is... There's a lot of talk about the Matrix right now, and understandably so, because obviously that the newest version has just come out. And to be clear, I've only ever seen the first one. But a lot of people talk about the Matrix as a metaphor for kind of revolution or overthrowing capitalism or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I don't think it's the best metaphor that we have because the problem with the Matrix is that from the very first instant almost, Neo is already outside. Do you know what I mean? He's mm-hmm. taken out. He's taken out of that structure, and he's immediately presented with the space from which to attack. Yeah, and we don't have that. We're still yeah. all very much inside, 
And we are trying to find a positionality or a place or a space from which to resist an attack. And when we're, we're never quite sure if we're outside again, remember that what, you know, what Badiou said about Deleuze and the radio station, you never know if you're inside capital or outside. And I think we really have to ask ourselves that question. So the metaphor that I've been sort of talking about with a few people lately is uh, Jim Carrey in the Truman show. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think, yes. I think, I, I think a lot of us, I think a lot of people should go back and rewatch that film. Maybe partly because it's one of the few good films that Jim Carrey has been in. But um, <laughs> oh, I drew a downward spiral. But no. Come on, the mask, man. Jim Carrey is a goat. But anyway. <laughs> that's true. Somebody stab me. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right, to be fair. And Cameron Diaz as well. Whew. Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> the point is that Jim Carrey, at some point in that film, he realizes that he is existing within a territory that can present him with no truth. And he spends so a lot of that film within that interiority, searching for a truth. But of course, we as the audience know that any truth or fact or revelation that he achieves within that space is going to necessarily be hollow because it is already determined by the force above him. He's still inside. You see that with his wife and with the people around him. And he discovers the bits of the set. You know, there are these partial truths, but he's never fully outside. And the important metaphor of that film is that he finally realizes what he needs to do. And he gets in that boat and he rides in that boat through rocky waves and rocky waters all the way to the very edge. And he gets to that door and he opens up that door onto a black abyss. He turns around, he says, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening and good night. And what I think is the political valence of that is the point at which he is at the black door beyond which he does not know what lies, that is the point at which the truly political question can begin. When you have finally found a way or discovered the imperative to step outside. And that is where politics begins. And I think that a lot of us need to think about how we're going to find that outside. Sorry, my cat that scratching. Absolutely fine. On that sick note, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you and, very much, Mamadou. Um, Honestly, it's been a pleasure. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm going to post Greg's socials in the comments of the episodes. Again, as always, please like, comment, subscribe The Malcolm Effect on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Until then, peace out.